what happens undercover stays undercover. Right? everyone and welcome to season three episode 16 overall episode 95 of the real spies real lives podcast this is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies i'm your host espionage author p.a duncan it's been spring for almost a month but you can't tell it where I live. At the beginning of this week, we woke to temperatures in the 30s Fahrenheit, rain, sleet, snow, and ice pellets, all before the morning was out. Not the best for a Monday, or any day for that matter. And next week is my birthday. It's a big one, a significant one. But no, I'm not sharing because... I'm still in denial. Regardless, it better be warm on my birthday. I don't need to be crankier than I already am most days. This week, for the series anniversary of A Perfect Hatred, my series about the extreme right wing in America, we're talking about book three, Descending Spiral. Almost every character, protagonist and antagonist, are spiraling down. Alexei's and Mai's relationship is at its lowest point in their 17-year partnership. The prophet of Patriot City is forced to flee from safe house to safe house after having to close down Patriot City's operations in light of Alexei's escape from there. John Carroll is unsure of his future, with the woman who's been his companion for almost a year, Siobhan, who is really my Fisher. Karen Wolf, the ATF agent who was undercover in Patriot City the same time as Alexei, feels betrayed by his disinterest once they've escaped. Yes, real spies have to deal with the reality of their lives, good and bad. This is why I show this aspect of being an intelligence operative. Rather than movies that show the hero, and it's usually a hero, walking off into the sunset with the gorgeous woman he's used and manipulated for his own purposes, real life is far different. There's family life at home to deal with. There's PTSD. My Fisher is a prime example of that. There are consequences to the actions you took while undercover, unlike the movies. Consequences that could affect the outcome of the mission. It's rarely swelling, dramatic music, or the suggestion of hot sex about to occur. Indeed, the British Intelligence Service once complained that new recruits to the service just expected to be James Bond. 
and were shocked to find that they didn't get the car. They didn't get the expensive flat. They didn't get to drink all the time and they didn't get to screw every woman that came along. I don't know why they were shocked about this or about the amount of paperwork they had to do. An intelligence service within a government is a bureaucracy like any other government agency and the paperwork gods have to be fed. Now, all those threads I started in book one are in a thick tangle in Descending Spiral, so thick that Mai decides she may need to set aside a personal principle in order to gain John Carroll's full trust. From the time Mai was recruited to the directorate, she insisted she would never use sex on a mission. She would never be the femme fatale. Alexei accepts this. After all, he has no problem being the homme fatale, the male version of a femme fatale. I recently watched a webinar from the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. The webinar was a presentation conducted by an intern at the museum, a senior at a local high school, and she did an excellent job. Her research was thorough and compelling. I found her a little naive about women's issues, past and present, but she's only a senior in high school. The title of the webinar was The Narrative of the Femme Fatale and Its Impact on the Public Perception of Women Spies. It's a very scholarly title for a subject that is really a serious one. Many just don't realize that. The intern started the webinar with the woman spy who initiated the narrative of the femme fatale, or rather people later used her and her life and her death as the embodiment of the femme fatale, and that's Matahari. Matahari was first and foremost a seeker of a comfortable life. Nice clothes, nice place to live, plenty of money. And she sought that in her relationships with highly placed men in government and the military. She was essentially an exotic dancer. Not exactly like an exotic dancer you would see today, but back in the early part of the 20th century, exotic dancers were often much sought-after entertainers. There was more dancing to it than the exotic. Through her relationships as an exotic dancer, she came upon tidbits of information from her friends and supporters she knew she could sell to the highest bidders. Unfortunately for her, one of her biggest customers was German intelligence in World War I. When she was caught at this by the French, she tried to convince them that she was a double agent. So they gave her an operation to prove that. And in the midst of that operation, the French turned on her, 
arrested her, tried her, and put her before a firing squad. However, the narrative of her story, the beautiful woman using sex to obtain secrets or to blackmail a lover, became so connected to women spies that even to this day, women in the intelligence community can't shake it. The intern contrasted Matahari with a woman who is undeniably World War II's most successful spy, Virginia Hall. Hall was a Baltimorean socialite who lost part of one leg in a hunting accident before World War II, but that didn't stop her from seeking to serve her country. Through sheer determination, she ended up being part of Churchill's Special Operations Executive, the SOE, where she trained agents, but also participated in operations. She parachuted into France or crossed the channel at night in a boat numerous times to supply other SOE agents in place, to get downed pilots out from behind enemy lines, and she also committed acts of sabotage. The Germans, the Abwehr, their intelligence organization, their just was appalled by her success. They knew there was a woman who did this. They didn't know her name. She used many, many aliases. And in fact, she cultivated a friendship with a man who claimed to be part of the French resistance, but who was really an Abwehr spy, but he could never get the goods on her. She was by far an incredible operative, forced, however, because of the time, to take a backseat to male counterparts who had far less experience than she did. Toward the end of World War II, she switched to the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, because she was an American and spent the remainder of the war in spy operations that would make your toes curl, including obtaining key intelligence that made D-Day a success. And she has been called not only the best woman spy, but the best spy ever. And I tend to agree. Her story is absolutely fascinating from the beginning of her life, through her youth, through her work in World War II and beyond. And you can read that story in Sonia Purnell's book, A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II. And as information about her work in World War II was eventually declassified, only within the past several years did people understand that she probably was the spy that helped to win World War II. Just nobody knew about it because it was classified. In fact, that was her problem after World War II when she tried to get a job in the intelligence arena 
and people asked her what her experience was, well, she couldn't really talk about it. It was still classified. And so she inevitably ended up in desk jobs and not the operational arena where she wanted to be, where she had her most experience. When I researched women spies, factual and fictional, to develop my character, my own woman spy, my Fisher, I found and read a bit of Virginia Hall's story. I thought I knew her story pretty well, but when I read Purnell's book, I just found out more than I knew was possible about her. A lot of it is previously unknown information about Hall, again, now out from under the classification or classified umbrella. Still, with what I did learn a couple of decades ago about her, I was able to incorporate some of Hall's characteristics into my Fisher. In the webinar, however, the intern's research, supported by what I read in Purnell's book, showed that Hall suffered from not being a femme fatale. Indeed, she was far from it. After the war, when Eisenhower created the CIA, Hall was completely ignored when she tried to apply for it. A younger generation of men, younger than the World War II generation of spies, built the CIA, and their perception of women spies was that they were only good as femme fatales. They couldn't be operational because women were too emotional and flighty. And Hall herself was condemned within the CIA for being outspoken and for proposing outdated methodology. The CIA did eventually hire her for a series of desk jobs, despite her pleas and her desire to be operational, especially in Europe, which she knew so well from the war. Her pleas mostly went unheeded, but she worked in the CIA to her retirement and she passed away in the 1980s. And again, only recently has much of what her actual wartime experience was has been declassified. And we finally understand exactly what it was she did during the war, the chances she took, the lives she saved, the way she could talk her way out of situations. It's an amazing, amazing story of bravery and determination. Purnell's conclusion in her book matched what was mine as I was reading her book, especially the part about her trying to become operational in the 1950s and 60s and being denied at almost every turn. I felt it was much like the women who competed and often exceeded the requirements to be a Mercury astronaut in the 1960s. The government, as we saw in some documents years after the fact, 40 years after the fact, whether it was NASA or the CIA, didn't want the bad publicity 
of having a woman in a situation where she might be killed. NASA didn't want to send a woman into space because, oh my God, what happened if, if she were to be killed? People wouldn't support the space program. The CIA didn't want women in operational positions for the same reason. What happens if we send her out and she gets killed and it's known that America uses women in these dangerous situations? Now, this was despite the SOEs and the OSS's record in World War II. There were casualties in both organizations among men and women operatives in SOE and OSS. But of course, that was classified then for a number of years, long enough that when the actions of the SOE were finally acknowledged and revealed, male and female agents were considered heroes and their deaths honored. No questions asked about either the women's spy skills nor the fact that they were killed in the line of duty. They had fought hard to preserve Europe, England, so forth, from the Nazis. Now, this young intern expressed her shock that a qualified and skillful woman, such as Virginia Hall, would be discriminated against. And I so wanted to say, my child, the stories I could tell you working in a mostly male occupation. But alas, we couldn't comment. That was probably a good thing. What I did like about that is that she was shocked by it. She was outraged by it. And I think because of how Virginia Hall was treated, when this young woman gets out into the world and into whatever workforce she chooses, she's not going to take that crap. So good for her. And then one thing that made me laugh about the webinar was the spy museum employee, a woman who moderated the webinar, at the Q&A period, someone asked, does the CIA use femme fatales? And the response was almost automatic. It's the response you always hear. The CIA would never, ever, ever use women as femme fatales, but the Russians still do, which is true. They do. But pardon me if I'm skeptical about the CIA. So at the end of Descending Spiral, my Fisher has to decide if she should be the femme fatale just this once to further the mission, she tells herself. But she also understands it would be the perfect way to punish Alexei for not keeping his trousers zipped while he was in Patriot City. So she makes her decision. She's going to set aside that principle of not using sex on a mission, and she's about to act on it when, well, you have to find out what happens by reading Descending Spiral. Yes, I'm evil.
And now it's commercial time. Quintet, the ebook only compilation of the reader magnets for A Perfect Hatred, plus a bonus story, and a sneak peek at an upcoming new series, Meeting the Enemy, is available for your Kindle and from other ebook distributors for the introductory price of $1.49. Now, this is an almost novel size ebook with all four reader magnets plus the bonus story in a single document. And that $1.49 is 60% off the cost of the four stories if you bought them separately. It's a bargain any way you look at it. And I'll post the links to Quintet in the description of this episode. My giveaway reader magnet for that new series, Meeting the Enemy, is still available. And note the word giveaway. It's free for at least another month. So you've got plenty of time to go grab a free copy of what is essentially the prologue to book one of that new series, and that book launches at the end of June. And for my birthday next week, I'm giving you guys presents. All four books of A Perfect Hatred will be free for a few days. Also, Quintet will be on sale for 99 cents that same time. And that will be from April 26th through April 28th. One of those three days is my birthday, but I'm not telling. And that's it for commercials. All right, let's read from Descending Spiral, and I'll set the scene up. As Siobhan Darty. Mai has spent a few weeks with John Carroll in his hometown of Porttown, New York. A fictional place, by the way, based on a real place. She thinks she's succeeded in talking him out of his plans for revenge against the government. She thinks she's got him in a good place, back with his family. He seems happier, less depressed, more vibrant not so paranoid. Because she thinks she's succeeded at this, she heads back home, only to discover her house has been attacked. A Perfect Hatred, Descending Spiral, Chapter 42, Bruised Egos. Mai spent the limo ride from Signature Aviation to the house, thinking about next steps with John Carroll. Though she'd put a tracker on his car, she'd asked operations to send someone to Port Town to watch the house. Perhaps a wiretap on the phone to see who Carroll called. Deep in thought, Mai almost didn't notice the huge change at the end of her driveway. The ornate wrought iron gates, which had cost a pretty penny, had been replaced with hardened steel monstrosities. Well, bloody hell, had Alexei changed the locks on her in an extreme way? 
she recognized the unsec four guard who walked to the driver's side of the limo. Mai lowered her window. Alan, what's up? Um, Miss Fisher. Mr. Bukharin initiated some security changes in response to an incident. If you get out here, I'll have a car come drive you up to the house. Mai gave the driver a tip and got out of the limo with her bag. Alan murmured into a tactical radio and watched the limo drive away. Alan, I'd like to know what's going on, Mai said. Mr. Bukharin indicated he would explain to you. Mai's forerunner appeared, driven by another security specialist she recognized. Alan used a remote to open the gate. I don't like the gates, Mai said. With a smile, Alan opened the door of the forerunner for her. Welcome home, Miss Fisher. All sorts of vehicles were parked in front of her house, innocent appearing to the neighbors as carpenters and plumbers. On the parking apron next to the garage, a refrigerated truck idled. That meant bodies. The death warrant for Alexei. Before the driver got the forerunner completely stopped, Mai had the door open. Yet another guard opened the front door for her, and she dashed in the house to confront chaos in the form of ripped-out flooring stained with blood. A lot of it. Someone had come for Alexei, like they had for Cutter. Taking the stairs two at a time, Mai headed for Natalia's room. In the home office, Alexei sat at his computer, reviewing the findings on the four men who'd assaulted his house. The radio at his left hand crackled, and Alan's voice emerged. Russian Wolf, Outlook One, over. Alexei picked up the radio and keyed the transmitter. Go ahead. Your wife's on the way up with questions. Thanks. I'll take care of it. As he closed the door to the office, he heard the front door open and Mai's footsteps going upstairs. He wended his way around the workman and started up himself. Mai left Natalia's room and went across the house in a run to their bedroom. He took his time climbing the stairs. At the doorway to their room, he found her standing in the middle of it, eyes on their bed. Mai? She whirled around, saw him, and came to him, her mouth closed on his, her hands moving, touching him as if to reassure herself he stood there. He embraced her and kissed back, knowing it would end far too soon for him. Mai broke the kiss and placed her hands on either side of his face. He leaned down so their foreheads touched. Let it be over, he thought. Are you hurt? she asked. No one was hurt. None of us, that is. Four shooters ran into Olga first. Their misfortune. Where's Natalia? With Olga at the Ritz. She thinks we have burst pipes. Was it the bounty? Yes. How did they know where to find you? Oh, that can wait. I'd rather enjoy the fact you're glad to see me. Her hands went to her sides and she backed away. 
Did you come straight here? Of course, where else would I? He took a breath to rein in his anger. I came home to our home. He waited only a second or two for the apology he knew wouldn't come. Why didn't you contact me when this happened? Mai asked. How was I going to do that, Mai? Walk up to Carol's front door and knock? I had to move fast, and there was no reason to pull you out. Come downstairs to the office, and I'll fill you in. He turned and walked away. While Alexei filled her in, Mai studied the photographs taken of the scene inside her house. Rage replaced her annoyance with Alexei. When he told her about the Australian's confession and the possible suspect, she did see red. When he finished, she made sure she looked into his eyes and asked, Did someone go off to Karen Wolf too? His eyes narrowed. Yes, he said, far too quick for her. And? They too were unsuccessful. Thanks to you? I told you, I wasn't there. How do you know? Because Agent Walker alerted Nelson. There's something else you should see. He sat at his desk and brought something up on the monitor. She came to stand at his shoulder, careful not to touch him. Remember the gun dealer, John Adams? he asked. Of course, why? The night we were in Ohio at that gun show, someone broke into his house, tied him up at gunpoint, and stole part of his gun collection a lot of ammunition and coins, all of it worth around $100,000. Adams told the police to look for a tall, thin army guy from Arizona named Jay Carroll. Well, Carroll was with me in Ohio. So was Duval. Parker wasn't until that Monday. Well, what are the particulars? A little after 9 p.m., Adams went out to feed his hogs. I can't imagine why you'd feed pigs at night, but perhaps agriculture has advanced since I was on the collective. He looked up at her and smiled. She knew she was a bitch for not responding to the little joke, but his fucking another woman was grounds for bitchiness. And more. Anyway, Alexei continued, a man in camouflage and a black ski mask and gloves accosted him with a pistol-grip shotgun. He tied Adams up with duct tape and blindfolded him. He told the police there were two men, one of whom he didn't see, only heard. After they left with their loot in his own van, he managed to free himself and tried to call 911, but his phone lines had been cut. He hiked to a neighbor's place and called the police. He described the man he saw as 5'10 or 11, maybe... 180 pounds, built like a fire plug. Not Parker, Mai said, but a good general description of Elijah. Ah, at the gun show. I overheard Jay tell Duval to call Jerry and make sure he'd done a job. Coincidence? Uh, not likely. Jay said he was going to get back at Adams for cheating him. Maybe stealing his stock and setting it under the table is one way to do that. But when Parker showed up, he wasn't in a van. You know, probably abandoned somewhere. The gun stored or sent to Arizona with Duval. 
The guns might be harder to sell at the gun show, but private deals are easy. Selling them the ammo and the coins will bring in significant cash. Well, what for? They've already bought fertilizer. Carol's going off the grid. He'll need cash for that. My shook her head. His father gave him half the proceeds from the estate sale, nearly $7,000, but he's staying in New York with his family. I'll wager not for long. He gave me his word. This time, his smile was sardonic. My, his word is no good. He probably left New York before the wheels of your jet left the runway. You didn't see the change in him. Alexei stood, his face cold when he looked at her. I saw enough. She got the dig and ignored it. Well, you didn't see how happy he was with his family. He'll stay. Alexei, I'm close to getting him to tell me what he's planning. I'm very close. Since you didn't bother to check in for the past two weeks, your turn to fill me in. Alexei, I'm not a probationary operative who needs a lecture about protocol. You only checked in once when you were in Patriot City, though I now understand why. We don't need the tit-for-tat, my. I'm still the senior in this partnership. I need you to fill me in. She seethed at the order, but she told him in excruciating detail what had transpired. Emphasis on her and Carol's conversation in the bar. When she finished relating it, Alexei said, Of course, the drug smuggling part is true, though the CIA uses contract security, not U.S. troops. The other is a psychological test. They group the trainees in a room and tell them, We're going to turn you into Uncle Sam's assassins. The ones who stay have the right stuff for special forces. Well, that wasn't done to me when I went through U.N. special forces training. He shrugged. Well, you weren't going to be a permanent member. And if you leave, you fail the test and you're out. On paper, Carol might seem like a perfect candidate, but his very rigidity, which we've both noticed, could disqualify him. Plus, you have to be a little warped in your thinking to be in special forces. How else would you put up with all that crap during training? Look at me. I went into Spetsnaz because my wife had been scalded to death and I wanted someone to kill me because I didn't have the guts to do it myself. Rather warped, wouldn't you say? She resisted that temptation. I know Spetsnaz was divided into assassins and shock troops, but I never thought of the U.S. Special Forces as organized that way. I know they have snipers, of course, but they're used tactically, not for casual wet work. Jay was interested in special forces for the self-sufficiency aspect, not to be an assassin or a drug dealer's secret escort. Special forces want people who can be unpredictable, approach a problem from an angle where the enemy is least likely to expect it, and who can exploit vulnerability. That's not Carol. However, they do want people, when you say, do this, they do it without question. That is Carol. So Jay fails a test because he didn't believe in cold-blooded murder, and you think he's lost? Didn't he tell you he didn't think of getting even with the government was a crime? 
Well, there are other ways to get even. My, tell me, how else do you use fertilizer to get even? What I told him about Lifford, a meaningful example, I'm sure. Stop interrupting me. Alexei sighed and said, he is obviously fond of you. Maybe he trusts you. Maybe you've been persuasive. You don't sound convinced. Remember, I saw him hang on every one of Elijah's words. Another sigh. You've reached the point where your excuses have worn thin. Excuses for what? His eyes flashed at her. You know what I mean. He's a man. Your point? He closed the space between them. Don't pull that with me. You're not far from the time when you'll have to put out or shut up. If I do, I'm sure I can rationalize it with, I did it to stay in the mission and it has nothing to do with my feelings for you. Twist the knife some more, my. My guts aren't quite ripped out yet. He strode to the windows to stare out. Damn, she thought, that was useless. They had to find an even keel, if not for the mission, then for Natalia. Time to change the subject. When will the trucks and the workers leave? Tomorrow morning. The local authorities will claim the bodies. Nelson has worked out a scenario with the police. Is Olga all right? A bruised ego. Are you all right? Not a loaded question, by the way. I'm mad as hell. Oh, me too. Alexei, when I saw the reefer, I thought... He turned around, interrupted her again. I know. If we leave now, we can have dinner with Natalia before she has to turn in on a school night. She'd pushed him hard, but she didn't much care. She managed to smile. I suspect she's enjoying having a Platinum American Express while she's so close to the fashion center at Pentagon City. Prepare yourself for the bill, he said. That brought a brief smile to them both. All right, I think that's enough for today. Don't forget to look for the links to Quintet and the free reader magnet in the episode's description, this episode's description. So I haven't decided yet what I'm actually going to do on my birthday or what to buy myself. I may take a day trip somewhere or I may hunker down inside the house and remain in denial about how old I am. But if I do go on that day trip, rest assured, wherever it is, I'll be keeping an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a presentation of Unexpected Paths Media. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Join me next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. For my birthday this year, I'm asking people to donate to Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières for their work in Ukraine. They were there before the invasion and are still there 
providing medical services to Ukrainians who need them. That's an easy way you can stand with Ukraine.